Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Business. In today's episode, we're speaking with Nick Bayek. Nick is the CEO and co-founder of Helsum. From what I can see, he's leading a bootstrap to big financing success story. At Helsum, their mission is to be the most loved payments company on earth. But if you think about it, payments are a pretty obscure world. We don't put a lot of thought into it. However, it's foundational to our modern day lives in everything we do in all of our economies. Now, I really enjoyed our conversation as we discussed the world of payments and how he was able to enter the industry, compete, and now flourish. He and his team have built a foundation over the last 10 years, which led to a recent $16 million Series A financing. With that, we get into a bit of his experience and how he's been able to grow to over 100 people in his company, and how the financing process was for him, what it took for him to first understand what he needed to do to raise that investment. Nick speaks with a lot of substance, so I'm sure you'll learn a lot from this interview, even if you never once heard anything about the payments industry. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this. Is Well, payments, I think, are really interesting. That whole world, I think it's misunderstood. I think that you guys have got a really neat startup story, but also have just raised some significant capital. And then you're coming at it from a technical background as a technical co-founder. So there's a lot of good stuff here. But how about if I, I'll hand it over to you to give us an intro and the background on who you are and what you're building? Sure. That sounds great. The quick intro on myself personally. So I was born in Texas, but I moved to Montreal when I was one years old. So my first language is actually French. (laughs) Grew up in Montreal and moved to Calgary in 96. I was 12. And that's when I got really into kind of computer programming, computers and English. So I like to say I'm a Texas French Canadian and I speak none of the languages <laughs> properly at this point. So All right. that's the quick intro on me. And in terms of healthsome, I mean the, the thirty thousand foot view, we're a payments company. We service small, medium sized businesses in the US and Canada. And our mission is to be the world's most loved payments company. And that is a little bit of an oxymoron in the space. I mean, people feel the way people feel a lot of times about their payments companies, especially SMBs, is kind of like how they feel about their telecom, like their telephone provider or their, their insurance company. Yeah. It's There's not a lot of love there. So just by making that our mission, it, it creates quite a bit of a contrast. And that's really what we do every day. Why don't we start and just discuss payments right off the bat? Because I think it is such a massive world that is so misunderstood. And when I think about payments, I think of PayPal and I think of like Moneris. And I remember as a small business, my parents had to put down some 
ungodly amount of money just to get the Monero service for their restaurant. And I was just like, what a painful business. And so, yeah, where is this? And there's got to be now huge competition, Square and so on. So can you give us some, or at least enlighten me? So payments is interesting. I mean, it is a gigantic, gigantic business. So even when you're you're talking to investors or anything like that, like nobody questions the TAM, the total addressable market. They're just like, okay, it's payments. Like you can name probably a dozen payments companies that are over a hundred billion dollars in value. Like it's just, that's how big the space hmm. is, but nobody owns payments. Nobody, it's not a winner take all market. Hmm. So there's a lot of room for different companies to kind of find a niche and figure out their, what's unique about them and their unique place in the market, which makes it really interesting. But the one thing I'll taking a step back, the one thing I'll say to payments. So you know, say we're, I'm, I'm recruiting somebody to come over and, and kind of join us on this journey. When you hear about payments, you know, the first thing you can think about is like, oh, is that is this a snooze of an industry? Like, is this like you talk to somebody at a cocktail party? No, I go to many cocktail parties, but let's just say yeah, we're yeah, at a I cocktail party. Yeah. You know, say I say we're going to payments. They're like, oh, that's, that sounds exciting. Yeah. yeah, right. But the reality is that if you actually look right below the surface, you get a front row seat at the world of business, the world of commerce, the world of SMBs. Like we interact on a daily basis, anybody from like a brewery to a, a wheat manufacturer to, you know, a tire company to a restaurant to like just a wide, wide, crazy range of businesses, you know, electric bicycles, anything you can think of, payments is a major portion of how they do business. I mean, it's just, it's literally the heartbeat of of commerce, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's really the pitch that's so exciting about payments is you get a front row seat. You get, you know, front row courtside tickets to just a, such a huge range of businesses. And then it's it's also a huge responsibility because they're putting so much trust in terms of their the way that their businesses run into your hands that you have to take that responsibility very seriously. But it's, I think, at least, I like geeking out about it all day. It's just an exciting world to be in. Well, clearly you're in the right position being the CEO of Helsum. So it's like that passion, that enthusiasm is great. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody likes walking out of a door that says private at the back of a small business, right? Like you just, you get to see what's actually happening behind the doors and help them to make their business more successful. And and if you like that, then this is like the best place to be. Awesome, man. And so I'm curious when it comes to something like payments, there's got to be a lot of barriers to entry. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of barriers to entry. There's the security and cybersecurity requirements to be able to integrate with banks and integrate with terminals and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot to it. And you guys had like a bit of a prolonged bootstrapping story. How did you start? How did you get that first customer? What was it like getting the payments, the other payments providers or the banks on side with what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, the original version of Helsum, like, so Helsum kind of 1.0, right? I started well over a decade ago. I was in my mid-20s, and it wasn't a startup. You mean, the world startup in Calgary didn't exist. Mm. The world VC didn't exist. Like, it wasn't, you just started a small business. I convinced I was a reseller, so I went to a big bank, and, and they had a kind of like a white label reseller program where you could kind of resell their their merchant services. And I said, okay, well, I could do a better job. And you had some control over pricing and you can certainly do a better job on a customer service. And the first year we got 49 customers. So we convinced 49 small businesses to sign up for our service. Hmm. And, you know, and it was a very, very slow grind. Didn't pay myself a salary for a very, you know, for a number of years as we were, you know, trying to figure this thing out. And I, you know, what it did though is that it gave me a, a front row kind of education to the world of payments, the world of banking. And over time, you know, we had a big relaunch of our company about a little under two years ago in June of 2020. That's when we relaunched our entire company, that's the Helsum kind of 2.0, as a full, the industry kind of a geeky term is payment facilitator. So we are fully in charge of our destiny. It's our service. 
we underwrite, we deliver mm. the funds. We like, you know, we, we are a true payments company on the level of a PayPal or anybody else. But that took a decade. That took a decade of yeah, yeah. building a business over time, making the right connections, making the right relationships, convincing regulators and everything to get to the point where we could actually do it on our own. It, it was quite a journey. Wow. Overnight success takes five years at least, hey? I would say a decade for us. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I like that though. I mean, that's coming into the market by saying, hey, we could go and be a reseller and convince 49 people to come on board. You've not, you're now in business, right? Like the best way to be successful in business is to be in business. Yeah. The bootstrap portion of it teaches you... I have no regrets on that side. I mean, it's very much, you have to get really, really deep into how your business, your unique economics, everything has to be hyper-efficient because you're building a real business versus I think when you're venture-backed, there's an advantage to it where you can kind of pave over certain problems with money mm. and kind of get back to them later. And But what Bootstrap has taught us is how to build a really viable, successful business on its own. And then finally, you know, we were bootstrapping for a very long time. And then just a few weeks ago, we announced our first kind of capital, you know, venture back investment. But that's something that's a, that's a, that was a very long journey to get to that point and make that decision to switch. Hmm. Now you've grown over 10 years now. What do you have over a hundred employees? Yeah, we're hundred and almost 120 today. Wow. Good for you, man. And I want to get into the financing, into that growth and what that whole experience was like, because I think that's a very unique event in, in any company's history or timeline, or it can be unique events. But how about growing over the last 10 years and to see yourself at 120 employees? How was that? And what were some of the pivotal moments or the mind shifts you had to make to start to accommodate and grow? Yeah. So what we did is that the old business grew to about 50 people. So that's how that, you know, the bootstrap business, and you know, that was up to about two years ago. So it, you know, slowly grew added, you know, one person every day. The way we looked at it was, in my mind was always, it was never about how much money can I extract out of a business. That was, it was never part of the way I looked at building a business. It was, I had a quick formula in my head, which was around like, you know, every time there's an extra 5,000 or so in free cash flow for the month, I can hire one more person. Oh, so, you know, I would wait for the bookkeeper to, which is actually my mom who still works with us today. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, you know, okay, how much, how much, how much extra did we make this month? And, you know, she might say $11,000, like, great, I'm hiring two people next week. And I was always the mindset where, you know, just to try to build it into what we hope to build it one day, right? Hmm. And what was happening behind the scene is that we were a reseller of merchant services, but we were building, it, it took us almost four years to build the Helsum 2.0 behind the scenes, right? So as we were kind of building out our own payment technology stack and our own fraud systems and our right. own everything, everything. So the old business was kind of the seed investor to the new one. So we're taking every dollar we could out of the old one and trying to build the future that we really wanted to build. But it was very much like every month, how much free cash flow, just a little bit more. Okay, squeeze in one more person. Yes. Try to build this thing out. Very cool. I don't want to jump away from payments yet. I'm still very interested. I'm curious about now that you guys have built an actual like full stack of a payment system and it's all yours proprietary, how are you guys going to fulfill that mission of being the most loved payments company? I mean, what is going to be so different or give you that ability to do so that everybody else is missing? So, I mean, the way we look at it is if you, you know, going back to your, your friends with your parents with the restaurant, you know, going with Moneris and so on. So we, we definitely target kind of more traditional businesses. So mm. If you think about, you know, dentists and lawyers and, and restaurants and auto mechanics and, and a lot of businesses to this day that are still, they're not necessarily using the new kind of Silicon Valley 
payments company, they're very much using kind of like their bank-based processors, like the one you mentioned, and mm. Chase and TD Merchant Services and all those ones, right? And the way we always looked at it is that what kind of service, if, if, we, if we could build a service that was truly uncompromised for those SMBs, what would that look like? And we kind of, we narrowed it down to three things, which is pricing. And I'll actually start with pricing. I know a lot of companies don't, they think, oh, if the if product is differentiated enough or anything, pricing right. doesn't matter. But the reality is that in payments, how much you pay for, you know, accepting those, those credit cards, those debit cards, those bank payments and all those things like really matters. That, that has a huge impact on the bottom line of that small business, right? Yeah. So you have to find a way to offer them really, really great pricing while still being able to build a, a viable business. And the way you do that is you build your entire payment structure from scratch yourself directly on top of the rails and you don't, you know, we don't go through any kind of third party. So a lot of people that, a lot of companies that try to tack on payments, they're doing it, you know, they're kind of reselling or tacking on, you know, a, a Stripe or a PayPal or whatever is the case, right? Okay. Versus for us, we built it directly ourselves. And what that allowed us to do is that because it's built ourselves, we get to whatever margin is generated, you know, we get to keep. Therefore, we can have very kind of aggressive pricing offered to our customers yeah. and still maintain a, a good margin to be able to grow our business. So that was the pillar number one. Pillar number two was great customer service. Once again, customer service can seem like in the world of startups, they're like, oh, customer service, that gets in the way of massive scale, right? And it's like, no, no, no. It, this is a financial service. This is the heartbeat of a business. This matters. They need, if you're processing payments every month, this is your cash flow. This is everything. And in, you need to be able to pick up the phone and talk to somebody that's competent on the other line. Right. So for us, we decided let's build a customer service team and treat them like rock stars so that they can treat our customers like rock stars. I mean, they are the touch point of our entire brand mm. you know, when somebody calls in, right? So that's the second pillar that we said, this really, really matters. No, no call centers across the world. No, you know, we'll obviously use technology to make the, the service scale and feel very self-service and touchless. But when you do need to talk to somebody, you're going to talk to somebody really great. Yeah. And then finally, the third thing was, once again, what does that SMB want in an uncompromised solution? That's that digital first. So instant sign up, no paperwork, great mm. software that's built into the experience. And nobody in the space was taking all three of those approaches and combining it together. What if we took the best of all worlds and left the ugly you know, away from the service? And we combined those three things. It took us essentially a decade to build, but that's what the new Helsum is. And that's why it's been growing so crazy. Because I Ultimately, we just gave small businesses what they wanted all along. Hmm. That's it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, some of the support service that you get out of out of the other organizations is just horrendous, right? And I mean, it's yep. yeah, it's like sometimes it's amazing. I think that so many companies fail to give great support when it's like you could take a problem, an absolute issue, just you know something that somebody's about to bounce out of your organization and turn around and make them a complete advocate for who you are just by great support. So that's cool. You know, you have to look at your customer service. Is it a cost center? Yes, to a certain degree. But is it also, you know, a marketing experience, yeah. right? If you're doing it right. I mean, I look a lot to a company like Zappos. I think they built an amazing, oh, right. out of, you know, the shoe company out of Nevada that ended up being bought by Amazon. But they have, you know, one of the world's best customer service experience. And it's just about the attitude to, I think it really starts with how the company views customer service. I think too many companies see it as a burdensome line item and they see it as the lowest common denominator of their team structure. And for us, we're like, no, 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 they are rock star and they're front of center to our team. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Something else I'm curious about is cybersecurity. And so there's got to be multiple elements that you and your team are dealing with consistently. What are those and what, what does that look like? 
Well, if you step back and you look at fintech, you know, so it's a buzzword, you know, I think it gets a lot of interest, especially from investors, things like that. But fintech can actually be, depending on the industry, is actually quite hard because you take some of the hardest parts about technology, which is, you know, uptime, speed, stability, reliability, you know, delivery of service. And then you take the hardest parts about financial services, which is, you know, underwriting risk, fraud, you know, anti-money laundry and things like that. You combine it together and you're like, here's all your problems combined, <laughs> have fun. And that's the beauty and the nightmare of fintech. I mean, but that's how you're able to build a business is you take you know, if you're able to overcome those challenges and scale them, you know, you can build something really great. On the security side, back to your question, yeah, I think that we have a giant target on our back from a security standpoint because, you know, we at any point we store, you know, tens of millions of credit card numbers on file. You know, yeah. we have very sensitive information on our customers. We hold a, a huge amount of data. So security becomes, I think a lot of tech companies, especially early startups, it's something that they think they'll think about later. Like, oh, once we reach a certain scale, we'll kind of shore up our, our security practices or security code practices and things like that. For us, it had to be very much at the beginning. You know, I was the first developer for a while and it is very much at the beginning of our story. It was like how we look at securing or developing secure systems is just part of our DNA. Like right. the way we, the, I mean, obviously we have security audits, we have, you know, PCI DSS compliance. There's a bunch of stuff that we have to go through from a regulatory standpoint, but just, it's also just the way that we look at security as a company. So for example, it's not very common, but when you join our company, you know, on your first day, you're going to sit down with somebody from our security team and they're going to walk you through like basic security awareness about like what is phishing, spear phishing, mm. malware, like, and you know, this is not just for developers, this is for everybody across the company. So on your first day, like we essentially give you like a tinfoil hat yeah. and we're like, <laughs> welcome to the team, be paranoid. Yeah, it's this is real. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And what kind of things do you face? Like, what are some of the threats that are out there? And, and I mean, they're constantly evolving with, with the conflict in Ukraine. You're hearing about basically cyber warfare that's happening and attacks that are happening. And it's, it can be, you know, positioned towards the West. And what kind of stuff are you facing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a number of different threats. If you look at the if you look at a lot of the big breaches that make you know some really big headlines, a lot of it comes from kind of targeted spear phishing. That is essentially hacker groups that are going to go after specific employees through you know social engineering and email campaigns and things like that to try to get their credentials and get oh, it okay. right. And obviously, our, our security team is very aware of that, and you know, like most companies should be, and you know, they put things in place to constantly kind of monitor and look for things like that. And just sorry, that, just for clarity, uh, yeah. like you've got phishing, which is just a general email blast of sorts to download something mm -hmm. and spear phishing, you're saying it seems like much more targeted social exactly engineering of like understanding yeah. somebody, huh? You know, typically phishing is like, you know, it's a big wide net. They'll maybe they'll maybe they'll target a company, but in general it's pretty broad. Mm. Versus spear phishing is like we're going after this individual in the company, even if it takes six months. Mm. That's where a lot of I think breaches that you see headlines for kind of typically start from a, a standpoint from there. But there's also other things. I mean, there's just, you know, the security, the security of your network of your software, you know, we have a bug bounty program, which has been really successful for us, as most tech companies do, where essentially that's more of the white hat, you know, hacking side of things. If yeah. you find anything, we'll pay you to report it. And oh, like even for the outside. Yeah, very much so. So, oh, cool. so you know, it's public, it's on our blog and we, you know, it's very common for us to go on a monthly basis kind of proactive participate in that program and give bounties based on what people find. I mean, it's, it's, that's a healthy part of running a, an online based kind of companies that you want to invite that 
yes. that feedback and that discovery process. And then I think, uh, you know, to your comment on Ukraine and everything that's happening in the world, uh, DDoS attacks are big. And I mean, we they're fairly constant. And we're fortunate that over time, especially last year, we really ramped up our ability to fight those off, you know, through some great service providers. Um, Cloudflare comes to mind. They're, they're mm. some of the best companies out there. And it's just because you're constantly seeing attacks. I mean, that's, you know, if you do it right, nothing is 100%, nothing is is bulletproof. But you, if you do it right, you can be under kind of some pretty some intense DDoS attacks and nobody notices. Your service is still running. Hmm. Merchants are completely unaware that it's happening. What's the nature of a DDoS? As I understand, it's like denial of service. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, what is the big impact? Your site goes down or is there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, it's but a site goes down when you're in a transactional business. I mean, think about when you go to the store and you tap your card on a device, mm. right? I mean, if that transaction takes more than about three seconds, it doesn't feel right. Mm. It doesn't, you know, customers start getting angry. I mean, you talk about more than 10 seconds and merchants are calling you. I mean, it's the level of uptime of the expectation, as it should be, that our customers have of our service is pretty immense. So even the idea of like going down for... 10 minutes or an hour or anything like that. It's just simply unacceptable for the type of business we run. So, yes. Yeah. DDoS is very much, you know, bad actors just overwhelming your your servers and your traffic, you know, your your, your websites and your services with bad traffic. But I mean, you're talking about like t- sometimes tens of millions of requests an hour, hmm. like extra on top of your your normal loads. And you have to, you, ha- you know, at a certain point, you have to work with third-party providers like Cloudflare that can detect what is good, what is bad and start filtering that out. Okay, interesting. Fascinating for me. So with that, I mean, you're 10 years in, you're bootstrapped. And this kind of reminds me of the story of a CEO of Active Campaign, who we had on a number of interviews before. And it took him a good 10 years building up his email uh, company while I think doing like, basically had a, a real company and on the side was doing some email work. And then in a series, I think they did a series A, which wasn't really announced for 10 million, and then did a series B for 110 million. And it was, it could have been the same, the exact same financing, but it was just like, boom, huge. It sounds like you're doing something similar here, but you raised 16 million in a series A just recently. Yep. Yeah. Take us through that. Sure. I mean, so it's our first institutional capital investment ever, right? So Halsum truly was bootstrapped from the ground up. Every dollar that came in was generated by us. And what happens when we relaunched our service with, you know, those the Helsum 2.0, the three pillars I talked about, yeah. which really kind of resonated with SMBs, things started to really take off. And which was great. I mean, I think you, you work for a decade to be in a position like that, where you really feel that you finally built it and the wind is in your back and mm. everything is firing. Your marketing is firing. The service is firing. Everything is just kind of all cylinders are firing, right? And we realized pretty quickly that in order to keep up with what we had built, we had to get pretty aggressive with our hiring. So, you know, we're a company of 50 people and we'd be quickly within, you know, we've gone from 50 to, you know, almost 120 in about 20 months. And as a bootstrap company, like there's no matter how successful your business is, you're kind of the thing with tech businesses, whether they're SaaS or payments or things like that, revenue comes Revenue doesn't all come up front, right? There are long relationships to your customers and you're kind of making, you know, recurring monthly kind of revenue, right? Which means that it's not like the the days of Microsoft where they could sell a two-year license up front, get all that cash and then use that cash to kind of keep growing, right? So you get to set yourself in a position where you're like, okay, everybody's signing up, revenue is starting to catch up, but it's not going as fast as 
what you need to invest to keep up with the service mm-hmm. because the revenue kind of gets delivered over a longer period of time, right? As is recurring revenue business. So, you know, we were kind of starting to really get over our skis to keep up with it. You know, as a bootstrap company, we're going, okay, now we need to start, you know, more and more aggressively higher, but can we keep up with it? And can we keep up with what is starting to get expected out of us in terms of like how fast we should be releasing features and keeping mm. up with the quality of service and anything like that? So we had hesitated on the bringing on kind of venture capital for a very long time, just because we had built it all ourselves. We had essentially de-risked it. You know, we had, we had proved that we could do it. We did all the hard work for years to build it all. We had brought it to market. It was working, you know, could, could we continue? And we realized, you know, like in order, we're going to be, we're going to be leaving so much on the table if we don't kind of raise the capital on we too. So I met with my executive team. We had a big talk and we said, okay, I think it's, I think it's time. Let's go do this thing. We know ourselves, you know, we'll, we'll have options in the market. We'll find the right capital partners that have the long-term vision that we do. And so what that process looked like was we regrouped in the fall and made that decision. We started getting kind of introductions in November. So went to talk to a bunch of CEOs and other people had done it. And I hadn't, you know, it's, it's a little weird to kind of never have done it and try, join, you know, jump straight to a series A and yeah. try to go that big that quickly. And, but we talked to a lot of investment partners. We kind of officially quote unquote, open our round on December 1st and had a number of offers. And we, we chose the one that, it wasn't the one that necessarily had the highest valuation. It was the one that we felt were the best capital partners for us. Perfect. Yeah. And, you know, went through a couple months of kind of due diligence and, you know, kind of closing up, you know, stitching everything together. And finally I made an announcement a few weeks ago. So it's quite a process. It takes a lot of time, way more time than I thought it would. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from, you know, just initiating the conversations all the way through to due diligence and check signed and closed kind of thing. Yeah, it's a big process. What was it? You said you didn't go with the the funder with the highest valuation, but with but as a better partner, which is I mean, it should be just table stakes that that's the way it should be done. But what were some of the characteristic traits that made this funder better than another that perhaps gave you a higher valuation? So I think if you go back to what I said at the beginning of of our conversation with our mission, you know, our mission is to be the world's most loved payments company, and mm-hmm. you think about those three pillars that I've described, right? Which is, you know, low rates, great customer service and a digital first experience, right? That sounds really obvious to a small business. Like if a small business hears this, they go like, oh, maybe I should consider Helsom, which I hope you do. Yeah. Um, but, but to a investment partners, those are not necessarily, you know, we strongly believe in that because we ultimately believe that like, if we can deliver that type of service to our, to our customers, it's such a huge market. We can build a big, wonderful company in the process, right? But I think to the, you know, to a lot of investors, those are things that are actually a little bit in misaligned with the way that they sometimes look at their investments, right? It's like, who are you building a technology that is so special that somehow you can charge, you know, an arm and a leg for, Mm. right? Are you building something that is so self-service that you don't need customer service? You don't need that burden, right? You know, or even if you think about a fintech in general, like there's a lot of like regulatory burden, there's a lot of security burdens, a lot of burdens that, you know, like, can you build something that doesn't have to deal with any of those things, right? So I think that finding investors that heard that mission statement and said, I believe in this, I believe in, in your ability to, to build this, this vision, but also I believe that this is important to small businesses. I believe in your approach to it you know, putting your customers first, putting your, your team first and, and all of those values was more of a rarity 
in the kind of capital markets. And um, we went for the ones that that where sparks were flying, like they just absolutely believed in the way we were mm. doing it. And that was information venture partners out of Toronto, who ultimately became our kind of first lead into the round. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's it sounds like you were heavily influenced by the, almost the cultural fit versus the the capital or the terms. Well, I mean, you hear that like, you know, especially like a series A VC investment is like a 10-year marriage. Okay. So like you you better... No, it's easier to get divorced than it is to get rid of your investors. Well, there you go. So you better find the right one because if not, I think that I think that over time, my understanding, I haven't done it yet, so I'll, I won't speak too much, but over time, I think the capital becomes more of that, you know, especially when you go all the way to public markets, things like that. It just becomes capital, mm. Right. But I do think like a seed in the Series A investment is like hugely influential on the company. Mm. And we wanted somebody that influenced us in the right way to be more, you know, we want somebody to come in and be like, we really like who you are, be more of that. And obviously help us with some, some guardrails or, you know, one thing that actually when we were, when we, um, as we were having bigger and bigger conversations with them, you know, one thing that really resonated with us, we were asking them as potential investors, like, how do, how do you look at mistakes and taking risks and things like that, right? And, you know, their quick answer was there needs to be a lot of trust there. Well, we have, you know, we're going to put a ton of trust in you to, to operate the way you do. And we want you to make mistakes. And our only job is to make sure you don't make a fatal one, but we're going to encourage you to make mistakes. And, you know, that was the kind of attitude that we needed hmm. to allow us to keep being us. Yeah. Because we think that's a pretty good formula. And man, tons of questions here, because I think this is so valuable to anybody who's going into a financing and especially these early stages. And I think what's neat is you make a point that I haven't heard actually almost in a hundred interviews that I think is so on point is that the earlier the capital, the more interested it is. Whereas you get up to a series D, series E, series F, a public round, the bankers come in, they 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 sell your deal, and then they piss off and just hope there's a return on investment. They're not going to help you on product strategy. God, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's... So I think that's really, that's an interesting one. With your management team, you're the technical co-founder. I mean, what was the discussion like, especially 10 years in to say, hey, we want to bring in outside capital. How many people did you bring into that conversation and how did you navigate that? Yeah. So I have an executive team, including myself of four people. So we have Rob, who's our COO, which I, I like to call our my delayed co-founder. Okay. <laughs> and so he started the the Helsum 2.0 journey with me you know, five years ago. And Marge, our CFO, who is absolutely was just absolutely instrumental in kind of we like to joke that I was the dancing bear in front of the the investors, you know, on the calls, right? But she was the one ring, doing the real work behind the right. scenes, right? Yeah, yeah. And then finally, Brett, our CTO, who very much helps me kind of build this entire technical machine. And they were very, very involved. So the way that I've always approached my executive team is very much, would I be willing to start it? If Helsum exited the next day, which is obviously not our plan, but if it exited the next day, you know, would I be willing to do another business with this executive team? And the answer has to be yes. If not, mm. they shouldn't be on the executive team, right? I should be able to like, we exit, we start a new business, the exec room looks the exact same. Yes. Thing, right? So they're very much part of that conversation. But for us, you know, transparency is one of our core values, which I know is easier said than done. But the level of transparency that we bring to our team, we're really proud of. So we were we decided to be really transparent with our entire team throughout the process, which I think is more rare because I think hmm. a lot of times, you know, a founder will come into the room and say, hey, you know, we're going to go raise or we raise and yay, you know, hurrah, champagne. But we, you know, we have monthly town halls with the whole organization and every, you know, 
a good half hour of that town hall was just like, here's what's happening. Here's what we talked to. Here's the good. Here's the bad. Here's the ugly. Here's our hopes and fears. And, you know, we would actually be super candid about, you know, the entire kind of fundraising process and what was working, what was not, the conversations we were having and our fears about certain potential parties or, you know, why we chose not to go with a, a certain one and yes with another one. And I think, you know, we do that because we like to share, first of all, like it's just okay. in our nature. Yeah. And I think it builds a huge amount of trust with your team because you're willing to share in that experience and you're willing to trust them with the information. Like if you're willing to trust them with your customers, with your software, with your security, with your marketing, why aren't you willing to trust them with this as well? Hmm. And I find it always kind of strange that a lot of founders don't do that. Like they don't have that level of candor when it comes to the fundraising. It's always kind of hush hush in the background. And we didn't want to have that as part. And I think that helped also because we were a bootstrap company and we were going towards being a venture back company for the first time. And there were some maybe fears from the team of what that, and, you know, including myself, what that would mean, how would that impact us and our culture? We felt like the best way to help the team through that transition was just to kind of verbalize the whole process with them and share our own fears and share everything and, you know, the ups and downs, because then they got to go on that journey with us over months. And by the time we said, this deal is done, we've raised our series A 60 million, well, hurrah, you know, they were just like, awesome. They, they were in that journey with us yes. and yeah. they understood the process. Yeah. I think that there's a lot to be said about transparency and, and also vulnerability. I won't get deep into experiences I've had, but remembering and reflecting back on when I was put, you know, in a leadership position and, and really just was it backed into a corner and just opened up the cards and said, guys, this is where we're at. And it was amazing that that level of transparency and, and vulnerability, what turned around from that. So that was, it was something that, it was a great life experience. I'm curious for you though, how transparent is transparent and how do you like, because I think there's a lot of value for companies who do that, but how transparent is transparent and what are parameters that you work with it? Yeah. So for us, I think we transparent is pretty transparent. I think that the only line that we go, like we don't have access to everybody's inbox and nor do they have access to, to ours or anything like that. That's, you know, mm. I do think that there's certain there's a certain line where you want to be able to operate kind of within your own world to an extent. But so for example, even prior to all this, when we we're a bootstrap company, about three and a half, four years ago, we decided, I read a book called Open Book Management. Okay. And it's about open book management, which is about like, it doesn't matter if you're public or private or anything, like your employees should have full access to all of your financial statements and they should actually be educated on them and understand how the business works. Hmm. So we rolled that out you know, almost four years ago. The entire, essentially, you know, we were a private company and, and there was that fear like, oh, they'll see how much money we're making, where we're spending. You know, we, we, we didn't go to the point where we're showing everybody's salary and put a name tag next to it, but they saw a full breakdown of how much we're spending on pretty much everything. And then we, you know, it has to come with financial education. So we educate them like how our business works, how we make money, how we make margin, how it all, you know, how much money, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, how much money is on cash on hand, how much yeah. we're spending and all that, right? But there was any fears that I had didn't materialize. Any fears like, oh, well, you know, we have an extra, you know, this is back in the day. We have an extra, you know, 500 grand in profits. Like, why aren't you giving me a bonus or, or you know, a bigger bonus or whatever? Like that didn't materialize because I think that like, if you're transparent across everything, including your compensation structures, including everything, they understand that like the business needs to be in a good financial position to keep making big bets mm. and keep growing, keep hiring and things like that. So yeah, to answer your question, we're pretty transparent and I wouldn't do it any other way. It's one less thing to worry about. Wow. 
Yeah, good for you. Interesting. Man, this conversation has been, uh, the time's flying, but I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Let's talk maybe just another question about financing. And when you first went into this, the world of cap tables and structuring deals and all this, was that foreign to you? And how did you learn about that? And, and you know, what, any advice that you would have for, for founders about this? Yeah, it, I mean, it was completely foreign. I mean, it's funny how quickly you learn the terminology, mm. you know, pre-money, post-money, class A, press shares, da, da, da. And it's like now it, it, it feels almost second nature and I've only done one round. So I, I can't okay. pretend yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. an expert. But but even like six months ago, I didn't knew none of those terms. And But what I did is I reached out to other CEOs and, and founders that had gone through the process, that had built relationships over time. I said, I'm going to do this for the first time. I'm a sponge. Tell me everything you know. And there's some wonderful people in the process that really went out of their way and spent hours with me hmm. and my CFO, like really kind of walk us through the good, the bad, the ugly, and just a whole process. Mm. And that was is like a huge accelerated crash course into it. And they were also the first people that ultimately made introductions for us to kind of start getting warm introductions to different, you know, venture capitalists and, and things like that. So what we did is that when we were kind of finishing, stitching the first, the, the round together and putting everything together, we had decided to make a little bit of extra room for what we called kind of key individuals, right? Yep. And we went back to a lot of those, there's about a dozen kind of key people, both in, in Calgary and Alberta and in BC and Toronto and different kind of places that, you know, that had helped us and said, we'd love for you to join. You know, would you be interested in writing? It doesn't have to be a big check, but mm. just would you like to write a check and join this round? Because you're so, we want to share in that success and, and show our thanks in that way. And I'm glad I did that ultimately. It's just, yeah, it, it felt right. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's awesome. It blows my mind when I see how shut off and what a boys club financing can be. When it's like, wow, but imagine what would happen if you shared a little bit more. How many people you would have fighting in your corner? But it's very, very closed off and with sometimes with good reason, you know, or with strategic reason. But anyway, that, that's really interesting. Did the VCs have any issue and you bring in those people and putting them on the cap table? None at all. And that's probably because we chose the right capital partners in the first Yeah, way. there you go. So, yeah, yeah. But no, and, and what I found, you know, to, to your comment, I think that we're a Calgary-based company, right? And and the Calgary tech scene is still fairly, it's growing quickly, but it's still quite small. Like everybody knows each other and things like that. And there's very much, I wouldn't even use the term frenemies. That's not appropriate. It's more just like everybody, it doesn't matter if you're competing or not or anything like that. Everybody's just has this kind of like underdog mindset of helping each other. Mm. And I would actually argue that, that we felt that across Canada. Like, you know, some of the, the CEOs who worked in BC and Toronto and and things like that. They, there's very much this kind of like we got to get Cal we got to get Canada to become this kind of tech mecca, just like you know they'd say Silicon Valley of the North or whatever term. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But you know, there's definitely that drive of like you know it is very much like a from a selfless standpoint of like I just want to help somebody else because I think it's going to help my country. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we are we are at a deficit when it comes to to venture financing in Canada and to talent and to everything. I mean, you know, you just go across the border and you ten times everything. So, yeah, we had another guest on Charles Plant, who's done a lot of research into Canadian funding and and building billion dollar successes. One, he's critical of it in the sense that we do need more, but he also pointed some great points that you know you just cross the border and all of a sudden you can get much larger checks. So how do you compete in Canada? So yes, we are an underdog, but I think that we're, you know, we definitely have a fighting chance, which is very cool. 
I think so. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're getting there. Let's just talk about Calgary quick. I mean, I, I what, one thing I really think is, is good about Calgary is you've got a lot of talent. You've got a very ambitious, I think, province. And I think that the, let's not talk about the, the, the pros or cons of oil and gas, but I think that where you've seen benefit in having oil and gas be, you know, on the downside for a while because it enabled people to start to spread their wings into different industries. What's your take about Alberta and Calgary as, a, you know, becoming bigger tech hubs? I think that, so there's finally a mentality shift in the past, I would say just two years where, you know, I think for, for a long time, you know, the few of us that were building tech in, in, in Alberta and Calgary were kind of saying, hey, it's not oil and gas or tech, it's oil and gas and tech. But that message wasn't resonating as much. In the past two years, something's changed. And all of a sudden, like every politician, the whole city, people in energy, they're very much realizing that's like, oh, okay, we're going to build something together and it's going to be multiple industries and things like that. So that's right. wonderful to see. Like it's definitely that the conversation has changed. But I think one thing I'll say about, you know, my, my dad used to work in energy. That's why we moved here when, you know, growing up. What's fascinating about what the kind of energy industry in Calgary is that it's been built from scratch and it's been built pretty world-class mm-hmm. and there's truly an entrepreneurial spirit. So, you know, I was talking to somebody that used to do a lot of investments in oil and gas, you know, trying to convince them to switch over to the, to the tech side for investments, right. Kind of, you know, family offices and things like that. And, they, you know, and the person would say, yeah, you know, we, I used to invest in junior oil and gas companies and, you know, you know, five of them would do okay, you know, three would fail and two of them would just, you know, skyrocket. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right for tech. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. So, but that whole province was built that way. It was, you know, tin can, there's a term here. It's like tin can investing, which is like people would start a junior oil and gas company and they would, you know, it's kind of, they would go to everybody they knew everywhere downtown and just yeah, yeah, yeah. 50 grand or a hundred grand, right? And then they would raise essentially a seed round. So that mentality is here. It's just getting, uh, and there's a huge amount of wealth in Alberta that's been built from that energy industry. And it's just about like convincing all of that to, to start looking at other industries and taking that same approach and that same risk and that same attitude. And it's starting to happen. It's not happening as fast as you'd hope, but it, you're starting to see it. You're seeing see some big, there's a lot of capital that's starting to get deployed from like family offices realizing it's the same it's the same formula it's the same great province the same talent mm. it's just a different industry yeah it is really good to hear and I, and I do think i agree with you in calgary and alberta that conversation's changed it's gone beyond just oh we're oil and gas and you know and it's really good to see you know i was in calgary for 13 years and we recently moved but when we return and i look back i'm i'm starting to call it it's going to become the austin of the north that's my prediction yeah it's it's yep. there's this diversity and this coolness factor about an you know an inland city that I think it's going to be a wonderful place to be so yeah that's great it's fun to be part of not only you know I'm I'm privileged because I'm building a company right here but I'm not just building a company I'm part of a group of people building an industry mm. and I mean you don't get to say that in every city that you're in but we do get to say that here and that's it feels like you're part of something bigger than just your company which is awesome uh, that's really cool. Final question. I'm curious about what you read, memorable books you've read, things that have influenced you. So there's there's definitely a lot on the list. I have a whole library in my office that I keep kind of like kind of pushing to the team. You know, sometimes yeah, okay. reluctant, especially the more junior people are reluctant to pick up a book. You know, university seems to kill reading for young people. <laughs> and slowly get back into it. One of my favorites, it's a little bit older, but it's so good. It's Andy Groves, High Output Management. He used to be a CEO of mm. Intel. 
It's a little orange book. You know, it has a age to it because he talks about fax machines and different okay. things like yeah. that. But it's so good. It's you know, usually you read a business book and you might take one or two things away from it. Like, oh, these are good. These are good tools. I'll, I'll add them to my Batman utility belt of kind of management tools. Right. Yeah. For that book, you take away like, at least for me, I took away like 12, 15 tools. Like they're just, it's just such a good nice little book. So that would definitely be a, a go-to for anybody. Yeah. Okay. A high output management. High output management, Andy Grove. Oh, nice. Awesome, man. Okay. And just final, final is how can listeners follow your work and keep an eye on what you're doing? Well, I mean, any small business interested, obviously go to healthsome.com. And for myself, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I accept all connections that can choose me at policy and I'm always happy to chat. So Awesome. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.